You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and sparked the Protestant Reformation. And through his writings and teachings, Luther would become uh, known relentlessly for uh, arguing that the Bible alone and not the Pope is our ultimate authority for faith and practice. And he would also become known that we are saved by faith, not by works, but solely by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's some of the things that Luther is uh, famous for. And yet, the 95 Theses, none of them mention these great doctrines. That's not what was nailed to the door in Wittenberg, Germany. Rather, the spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation was Luther's indignation over the selling of indulgences. In fact, the original title of what we now call the 95 Theses was this. The Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. So what were indulgences? Indulgences were certificates of forgiveness that could be purchased. Now when we hear the word indulgence, we think chocolate. Like I want to indulge in some chocolate. And so we think, hey, indulgences, those are good, right? I mean, there might, I think there's even a brand of chocolate like, called indulgence, you know. But that's not what these were. These were bad. These were certificates of forgiveness that could be purchased. And so the local archbishop there literally created a fundraising campaign to build a new cathedral. And it's kind of wickedly brilliant. So, here, so here, here's the reasoning. Listen, everyone's a sinner. No one wants to go to hell. And so for a small fee, not only can you help build the church, but more importantly, you can get a certificate of forgiveness, guaranteeing your pardon to show God on your judgment day. Now, if you just think about it for a moment, you would realize this is, this is no good. Not only is it patently false, it's taught nowhere in Scripture, the real problem is, is it maliciously gives people a false sense of hope. In other words... The main problem with indulgences is that it is anti-gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. But before Luther could boldly nail his argument against indulgences to the door of the castle church, before he could say, hey, all of this is anti-gospel, Luther had to become convinced of the gospel himself. See, you can't rail against anti-gospel unless you're ferociously committed to the gospel. And Luther had become convinced of the gospel that uh, by grace through faith, God saves sinners who turn and trust in Jesus. Now listen to his conversion from his own words. He said this, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. 
Now this phrase, the righteousness of God, it's going to show up uh, periodically throughout the book of Romans. And it's introduced in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 where Paul lays out his thesis statement. In other words, a thesis statement, if you can understand the thesis statement, you know what the author is trying to do for the rest of the book. And so Luther knew, if I'm going to understand Romans, I've, I've got to understand these two verses. I've got to know what the righteousness of God is. Understanding Romans 1, 16 and 17 is like the key that unlocks the door to understanding in the book of Romans. So he goes on and he says, My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Luther basically is saying, I, I was a really good monk, like, so, like the best of the best. He fasted, he prayed, he served the poor, he read his Bible probably more than any of us. And yet he knew that none of these good works, none of these merits would satisfy the wrath of God against sin. And what did it do? He said it made him bitter against God. He said, I didn't love this God. Mind you, he's saying all of this as a, as a monk, as like a professional Christian. Then he says, night and day. I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. Luther came to see and experience the power of the gospel. He came to see that that phrase, the righteousness of God, was not something he had to earn, but a gift that was given to him because of Jesus. You see, in Christ, God's plan for redemption is accomplished. He is able, at the same time, to justly punish sin and graciously pardon sinners. By grace, through faith, God gives us the righteousness we lack. See, Luther knew, no matter what I do, I can't earn, work, achieve that kind of righteousness. And if I'm going to get it, it must be that God gives it to us. And this, friends, is the good news of the gospel. And when you hear that word gospel, I want you to think news, not advice. You see, if you ask a lot of people, what is the gospel? They'll, they'll, they'll give you, uh, they'll often talk about the implications of the gospel. They'll talk about what the gospel should produce in your life. Or they'll say, you know, you should uh, love God. You should serve others. This is the gospel. But all of that is good advice. But the gospel at its most fundamental element is good news. It's not primarily a way of life, an ethical code to follow, a religious program that details the necessary steps that lead to eternal life. No, the gospel is not something we do. It's news. And news is something that has been done. It's a report of, of things that have happened. And that was pivotal for Luther. Because he realized it's not something I do to achieve this righteousness. It's something that has been done. And not only that, it's something that has been done for me. 
When believed and embraced, does the gospel result in changed lives and changed lives and changed behavior? Absolutely. The gospel doesn't stay dormant in your heart. Does the gospel come with new beliefs, new ethics, new morality? 100%. Absolutely. But we must not confuse or conflate what the gospel does and what the gospel is. Those are two different things. The gospel is the good news that by grace through faith, God saves sinners who turn and trust in Jesus. If you're looking for a simple definition of what is the gospel... You could say a lot more, but this is like a compact and appropriate definition. The gospel is that by grace through faith, God saves sinners who turn and trust in Jesus. And that made all the difference to Luther. Because he came to see that justification, being made right with God, is not a process, but a change of status. It's not something that happens over time but happens in a moment in time. The gospel is news about something God has already done for us in Christ, not something we have to earn. Now this morning, we're starting a new series in Romans 8 called Identity in Christ. It has been called the greatest chapter in the Bible. If you read Romans 8, you will find that this is 100 proof gospel, bottled in bond, aged perfection, best served neat with no ice, like a good bourbon. And it rehearses the glories of the gospel, verse after verse. It gives the believer a thorough understanding of what it means to live out our new identity in Christ as a child of God. Over and over, it will remind us of our salvation in Christ, how to live by the Spirit, what it means to be cared for by our Heavenly Father. And our hope in, in walking slowly through Romans 8 is that we would get every single verse, every single word of Romans 8 deep in our souls so that we come to a deeper understanding of the gospel and that our hearts will become invigorated and enlivened in renewed worship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend the next 12 Sundays walking very slowly through 39 verses. Think about like chewing slowly, tasting every flavor, and savoring every single bite. Now my goal this morning is to get us ready for Romans 8. Because Romans 8 has seven chapters that come before it. And these, uh, these eight chapters are an exposition, probably the greatest exposition of the gospel in the Bible. Chapter after chapter, Paul is going to say, this is the gospel. Now, obviously, we can't cover all of those eight chapters in great detail this morning. But this overview sermon will give us a good framework to understand where Paul has been in his argument as we open up, the, uh, uh, as we open up chapter 8. Now you can break down the first three chapters of Romans into three sections. So if you're taking notes, here's our three sections. Romans 1, verse 1 through 320. So Romans 1, 1 verse, uh, through chapter 320, we're going to see deserved judgment for sin. For three chapters, Paul's going to say that everyone, both Jew and Greek, are guilty before a holy God. That no one is righteous on their own. And that our disordered worship leads us all to futile thinking, darkened hearts. And all of that in, results in deserved judgment. 
deserve judgment. The second section is going to be Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 4, verse 25. And in these verses, we see unmerited grace through faith. After three chapters of bad news, Paul explains the good news of the gospel. That God saves sinners by grace through faith. Paul's going to unpack how it is that God can be both a just judge and a merciful father. And then in Romans 5, chapter, uh, verse 1 through 8, chapter, or, or 8, verse 39, we see abundant life in Christ. For three chapters, Paul's going to say, now that you believe the gospel, what are the beautiful and glorious gifts that come through belief? This abundant life. Jesus tells us in John 10 that he came to give us life and to give it uh, abundantly. And Paul beautifully articulates the gracious and glorious gifts we have because we are united to Jesus. So let's jump into this overview sermon to see our first point, deserved judgment for sin. Now the first 17 verses in uh, uh, Romans give us an introduction to the letter. Here we find it's the Apostle Paul that wrote the letter of Romans. Now you may find it interesting to know, Paul did not plant uh, the church in Rome. A lot of the churches that Paul writes to in the New Testament, he was the founding pastor. He planted the church. He was a part of that first missionary team that came to share the gospel. And uh, new believers gathered together. He would stay there for a while, raise up elders, and then leave and go start another church. And he would write letters back to them. That's not what happens in Romans. In fact, Paul's never even been to Rome. So he couldn't have planted that church. It's very likely that there were some Roman uh, Jews who were at Pentecost in Jerusalem for that first sermon where Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 people were saved. And then they all scattered and went back to their homes. That's very likely how the church in Rome started. And as often um, is the case, these churches would contain both Jews and Gentiles. And so uh, if, if you know anything about the history of Jews and Gentiles, the, the, there, there was ethical clashes there. They didn't get along. Their cultural customs and practices were so different that they had a very hard time uh, uh, with unity. And so almost every single uh, New Testament letter talks about how these two different groups of people should be united under the banner of Christ. And you see that in uh, the book of Romans. They struggle with unity. And so Paul wrote the letter to the Romans to remind them that because the gospel is true, because they all have a new shared identity, because they are united together in Christ, their new identity supersedes their ethnicity and cultural customs. In addition to that, this is getting to the end of Paul's life. And he's wanting to kind of put down on paper a treatise on the gospel. See, it's one thing to think things. It's one thing to have thoughts. But your brain does something different when you write them out. That's what he's doing. He's, he's writing out this treatise, this systematic theology on what the gospel is. Which explains why uh, this letter is long and systematic and thoughtful with carefully articulated arguments on the gospel. This letter is written in about 57 AD during a three-month stay in Corinth. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 20. And then, as he brings his introduction to a close, you have the thesis statement. He's saying this is what the, the letter is all about. Romans 1, 16 to 17. 
Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is saying, come what may, persecution or praise, chains or triumph, and Paul had experienced all of those things. And he's saying, none of that is enough to make me ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is worth proclaiming despite the suffering that may result because it has the power to save everyone and anyone who believes. Whether Jew or Gentile or any ethnicity you can come up with, the gospel saves everyone. The rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, the slave, the free, the Jew, the Greek, it saves everyone. There is nothing like it on the face of the earth. And so why would I be ashamed of that? Our righteous God has seen it fit to declare us righteous based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, upon becoming a Christian, you aren't actually righteous. The moment you become a Christian, you're just like you were one second before that. Really unrighteous, right? Full of sin. But God declares us righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. And we're going to get into that uh, this morning in this sermon. But his righteousness, Paul is saying, can be ours, not through works, but through faith. Through faith. We obtain a right standing with God and eternal life when we trust in Jesus. Faith is what activates that righteousness of God in your life. Not works. So by grace through faith as we sing in our current hymn, God is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what Paul is going to argue throughout the rest of the letter. Now before he can get to how the righteousness of Christ is applied to us, he's got to convince us that we need that righteousness. Right? Before the good news makes sense, you've got to hear the bad news. And that's where he goes in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 3. Paul is going to unpack the universal human problem of sin. For in sin is the pandemic of pandemics. Before there was COVID, there was sin. Listen to what he says. Romans 1, 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you read Romans 1 to 3, you should do so with Genesis 1 to 11 opened up right next to it. These first three chapters of Romans are unpacking. It's almost like a commentary on Genesis 1 to 11. They should be read side by side because what starts in Genesis 1 to 11 continues to spread to all humanity. And though God has made himself known and knowable, all of us have actively participated in suppressing that truth about God. We are suppressors. It's what we do. 
That's what our sin does. It, it, it causes us to uh, know the truth. And as soon as that, that truth starts to make its way up, we, we suppress it. We cover it up. We call evil things good. We call good things evil. And every single one of us, from the oldest in the room to the youngest, has become trapped in a spiral of sin and selfishness. It's why some of our very first words are, mine. Have you noticed that? Children just intuitively know that word. It's just in their hearts. My children didn't see me and Andy fighting and saying, mine, mine, mine. They just knew how to say that word. Why? Because selfishness is inherently in our hearts. And as soon as we learn how to form our first words, that selfishness comes out. For out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul says the human mind and heart are broken. We have all willingly participated in the worldwide rebellion against God. Every one of us have embraced a lifestyle of idolatry where we worship creation rather than the creator. Instead of gratitude, which should be the natural response, the fact that we have life, that we've been given it to us, that we didn't create our own life, we don't sustain our own life, it should produce gratitude. That we've been given the greatest gift in the entire world. And yet, what do we do instead? We grumble. We murmur against God. And we're entitled. And we're saying, God, you have not given me enough to be grateful. It's all of us. Instead of devotion to God, we delight ourselves in our own sinful pursuits. We take that capacity we have to love and to adore which is part of what it means to be human you've never met a human who's not a worshiper you've never met a human who who doesn't have the capability and capacity to extend great love but instead of directing that love towards god we direct that love towards creation and to ourselves the reign of sin and the cycle of death are perpetuated by disordered worship. Paul ultimately says the, the ultimate problem, the problem of all problems, the sin beneath all of the sin, is we have disordered worship. And with our futile thinking and darkened hearts, we worship that which was never made to satisfy us. We notice that the things we choose to give our lives to don't actually produce the satisfaction that we hope they will. Why? They're not meant for that. They're not ultimately satisfying. They come up empty. But it doesn't matter. We suppress that truth and we worship our bodies. Sexuality, work, food, and drink. We worship politicians, affinity groups, experiences, popularity, platforms, and most of all, we worship ourselves. As G.K. Chesterton once said, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing we worship anything. When God is no longer the object of our affection, we will worship literally anything. And because every person stands under the just judgment of God, God's wrath and judgment are for us. In the Bible, the execution of God's judgment is called his wrath. So when you think about his wrath, it's connected to his judgment. It's just the, the when his judgment moves forward that's his wrath 
Though not just in theory, but when it's executed, that's his wrath. Now when you hear wrath, we often think uh, temper tantrums. We talk about humans having wrath. We're talking about exploding kind of anger. That's not God. He is not explosive in his anger. In fact, the Bible says he is slow to anger. Don't think fly off the handle anger. Think settled, measured, proportionate justice for evil. The problem with our anger is that we get angry at the wrong things, and it's almost always disproportionate. And I speak about that as a subject matter expert. But God's anger is not like that. It is the right response with the right proportion. That's holy anger. That's deserved judgment. It's the reason uh, why sin is the reason why our world is full of envy, malice, greed, perversion, hatred, deception, corruption. It explains why everyone and everything around us is broken beyond repair. That's Romans chapter 1. And then, because this is a church of Jews and Gentiles in chapter 2, he says, by the way, my Jewish brothers and sisters, this is not merely a Gentile problem. Because if you're a Jew reading this, you're probably reading chapter 1 and being like, yeah, the Gentiles are messed up. And then Paul says, by the way, you're messed up too. And so he spends this whole chapter saying that it's also, sin is also a Jewish problem. In fact, he says, Jews are just as sinful and actually more guilty because you have God's word. At least the Gentile didn't have God's word. They, they, there, are, there are some things they should have known but didn't know. But you guys should know better. Because God, over the years, has been revealing who he is and God's holy law. And yet you've still rejected it. So you're even more guilty because you should know better. And then in chapter 3, Paul brings everyone back together and he drops the gavel on our condemnation. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together because they, and they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Everyone is guilty and without excuse. Everyone deserves judgment and condemnation. Now, everyone who reads this, sees these words up here, will have one of two basic reactions. There's variations, but there's really two main ways when you read that, how you're going to respond. The first group will say, yeah, I've sinned, but no one's perfect. Do you hear the excuses starting to come up? The mitigation. No one's perfect. Isn't Paul kind of blowing this all out of proportion? You said, I've never done anything good. Isn't he exaggerating and maximizing the problem? Isn't he believing the worst about people? Isn't the reality that most people are basically good? And if there is a God, won't he see our efforts? We're doing the best we can. And at the end of the day, won't he um, forgive us? And at the end of the day, you're exaggerating. The problem isn't really that bad. And if that's you, any of those 
uh, statements. You, you, you feel them in your heart. You hear them in your mind. I would beg you to reconsider. As lovingly as I can, I would like to tell you that you are actively suppressing the truth instead of accepting the problem. If your gut reaction to everything I've said so far is that seems blown way out of proportion, I would beg you to reconsider that you are actively suppressing the truth. That's one way to hear that. The other group hears Paul and says, guilty as charged. You, like, that's me. I may not be guilty of every single sin in the first three chapters of Romans, but I'm guilty of plenty to deserve condemnation. I've done enough to deserve the guilty verdict. You see that your heart is driven by selfishness and that no matter how hard you try, you simply can't undo what sin has done and you are still actively participating in sin. If that's you, listen to what Paul has to say next. Because though the gospel first gives us the bad news that everyone deserves judgment, he is about to give us the greatest news. That God gives unmerited grace through faith. Here in verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So in the previous verses, Paul has argued that uh, we all need God's saving righteousness because we are unrighteous and therefore we deserve judgment. Now he says, but now. Some of the best verses in the Bible begin with, but now, but now. There's a contrast, something different. He says, there is a cataclysmic turning point in God's redemption story. At this point in human history, he's saying the righteousness of God has appeared. It's been revealed. And he's saying, now, this is a righteousness that does not come through the law, but this is a righteousness apart from the law. Not a contradiction to the law, but it's something different. It doesn't come through it. In other words, the righteousness that comes through the law would be something you achieve, something you do. But the problem is, is humanity is unable to achieve this righteousness on our own through obedience to the law. Instead, there's a righteousness that can be received, that comes by grace through faith. It's a righteousness that's received, not achieved. Memorize that. Righteousness is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. He goes on. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul says, everyone has sinned and therefore all of us are under condemnation. And therefore, all of us need righteousness. And everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are savable. There is no ethnic distinction. That's why he says there is no distinction. He's not saying this is a program for the Jews or this is a program for the Gentiles. He's saying, listen, the way God is saving people is this, that everyone can receive this righteousness. In the same way that we are all sinners, we can all be saved. The same program for everyone. No one is inherently more righteous or more savable than anybody else. So it begs the question then, how do we get saved? How are we justified? And here he says in verse 24, all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you like to write in your Bible, just put a big old circle around this paragraph. It might be one of the most important paragraphs in the whole Bible. We are justified by his grace as a gift, not by works or performance. This righteousness can't be earned, bought, bartered, or or stolen. We are saved by grace through faith. See, because God is gracious, what Paul is saying, he sent Jesus to save us from our sins, to die on behalf of his people. On the cross, this is what was happening. Yes, there was, a, uh, there was something happening historically. A real man named Jesus was going to the cross to die. But it was also a plan for the fullness of time. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself all of the just consequences we deserve. And he overcame it all by rising from the dead. In other words, he received what we deserved. He was the lamb slain who took away the sins of the world. He died for our sins in our place to satisfy, or as Paul just said, to propitiate the wrath of God. That that word just means to, to satisfy, to appease the wrath. Friends, Jesus became what we are so we could become what he is. There's an exchange happening. He goes to the cross righteous, perfect, holy. Then he takes on our sin and our condemnation and he gives us his righteousness. So where does the righteousness come from that we receive? Not from us. From him. That's what he's saying. In God's plan of redemption, the sacrificial, meaning In our place, that's what a sacrifice is. Penalty bearing, we deserve it. There's a penalty coming. In God's plan of redemption, the sacrificial penalty bearing death of Christ enables God to be both just and justified. Righteous and merciful, holy and gracious. Now you may be thinking, well, how is it? Like in our court system, the judge is like this neutral party. You know what I mean? He's sitting there, or she's sitting there, and they're hearing the arguments from both sides. They're neutral. They have no interest in what's happening, right? If they do, if they have a vested interest, they have to recuse themselves, right? Like, the judge can't um, have his, like, mom out there, right? He's going to favor for his mom, okay? The judge has to recuse himself. But, uh, and so in our, in our minds, we think, well, how can God um, allow the, the, like the, the, the plaintiff to go, or the defendant to go free in our case? But what's happening here is that in this analogy, yes, God is the judge, but he's also the offended party. And so he is allowed to say, I will not count it against you anymore because he's the one who's ultimately offended. Now, I want you to notice something, too. Paul is answering a different question here than what our culture asks when it comes to God and his judgment. I want you to think about it for a moment. In our culture... If you start talking to people about God and judgment, this is the question that is often raised. They say, well, if God is so loving, then how could he condemn anyone to hell? Have you noticed that? 
you have these conversations, that any time God and judgment comes up, it's always a, uh, uh, a surprising that God would, would be judgmental, as he's called. But that's not the question Paul's an, uh, addressing. His question is this. How could a God of justice ever forgive guilty sinners? Do you see the difference in those questions? Our cultural moment, people ask, how dare God judge anyone? And Paul is saying, how is it that God saves anyone? Two completely different questions. And the difference in these two questions says a whole lot more about us than it does about God. Our question takes God out of the judge's chair and puts him on the witness stand, doesn't it? How dare you? We've got some questions for you, God. Our question minimizes sin and assumes that we aren't the problem. Have you noticed that? Our question accuses God of being judgmental and unnecessarily rigid with respect to justice. And friends, I would like to say that this is arrogance and hubris of the highest kind. Paul's question is the right question to ask. How could a holy, just, and righteous God ever forgive sinners? And the answer is the cross. The cross is the place where love and justice meet. The cross is where the justice of God is satisfied because sin really has been punished. Jesus really does take on the punishment you and I deserve. And at the same time, mercy is extended because he was willing to be the one to die for our sins in our place. Now here's what happens in justification. This is important, don't miss this. In helping us understand it, uh, in, in the book of Romans, Paul is going to give us the example and illustration of Abraham. You remember old Abraham? He was as good as dead, Hebrews says, when God told him that one day that he would become the father of many nations. The only problem was that he and his wife remained childless and they were very, very old. But despite having every reason to doubt God's word, what did Abraham do? He believed in the promise. Now, if you were with us during our series in Genesis, you may remember that Abraham, Abraham was a terrible guy. He wasn't this model citizen. He was, he was a lousy father. He doubted uh, fr from time to time. He, just, he wasn't this perfect example of faith. The one thing he did that God said, yeah, that's good, is he believed in the promise. And God said, I will count that as your righteousness. That's why Paul says in Romans 4, 1 to 5, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Did you catch that? We don't earn or work for justification. Your paycheck is not a gift, is it? Right? When you work your, 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 your 40 hours and you get a paycheck for it, it's not a gift. It's what you are owed for what you have done. You've worked for it and therefore you deserve it. But that's not what justification is. 
We are incapable of producing our own righteousness. Therefore, it must be given to us as a gift. That means someone else needs to produce it and someone else must give it to us. And that's exactly what he does. He counts or credits that righteousness through the means of faith. That's what uh, Paul says is that when Abraham believed, he counted it to him. He credited it to him. It's like he woke up one morning and in his bank account, there was a deposit put there that he didn't put there himself, that he didn't earn. It was a gift. It was credited to him. John, Pi- uh, John Piper is helpful here. God counting us righteousness is the act in which God counts sinners to be righteousness through their faith in Christ on the basis of Christ's perfect blood and righteousness. Specifically, the righteousness that Christ accomplished by his perfect obedience in life and death. Christ has become our substitute in two, sen- uh, two senses. In his suffering and death, he becomes our curse and condemnation. And in his suffering and life, he becomes our perfection. Friends, Jesus became cursed so that we could become free. Jesus became what we are so we could become what he is. And this is the good news of the gospel, that by grace, through faith, God saves sinners who turn and trust in Jesus. Friends, we deserve judgment for our sin. But God so loved the world that through Christ, he gives unmerited, that means unearned grace through That's Romans 1 to 4. Now let's see the final section, Romans 5 through 8, to see abundant life in Christ. You remember that time in John's gospel when Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly? I can't help but think that that phrase was in the back of Paul's mind as he uh, wrote Romans 5 through 8. It's section after section of all the gifts, all the blessings of life that come to us because of our union with Jesus. So in Romans 5, 1 to 11, we find that we now have peace with God through Christ. And therefore, we can have confidence and assurance that we will be saved from God's wrath. Remember we talked about Luther earlier? He wrestled with confidence. He wrestled with assurance. How can I know that I will be saved? And in Romans 5, Paul says, because you have the, uh, the wrath of God has been pacified. It's been um, satisfied. And now you are at peace with God through Christ. Romans 5, 8 through 9, Paul says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore... We've been justified by his blood. How much more will we be saved by him through, from the wrath of God? And then in Romans 5, 12 through 21, Paul tells us that Christ becomes our new representative. You see, there are only two people in this world. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Two kinds of people. In Adam or in Christ. If you are in Adam, you have an inheritance of guilt and shame and death. But if you are in Christ... You have an inheritance of freedom, forgiveness, acceptance, and life. Paul says in chapter 5, verse 17, For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Romans 6, Paul tells us that in Christ we are free from sin's enslaving power. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was what? Crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You hear what he's saying? We were crucified with him. The power of sin has been broken. And just like when Jesus was raised to new life, we too are also raised with him. So believer, you really can say no to sin. Because the power, the enslavement, the reign of sin in your life is over. Then in Romans 7, Paul tells us that we are no longer under the crippling law of grace, but we are, uh, of the law, but we are now under grace. He tells us that the law is good. We should seek to live holy lives, but where we fail, grace abounds. In Romans 8, 1 to 17, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that we are therefore now uh, under no condemnation and enabled to live by the Spirit. He reminds us that God is not merely the judge who declares us not guilty, but also our loving Father who has adopted us as sons and daughters. And finally, as he brings Romans 8 to a close, he tells us that because God is for us, no one can be against us. And that what was started before there was time, God intends to bring to completion. God will justify, sanctify, and glorify his children. Friends, because the gospel is true, we can have a new status where we are forgiven and accepted. Because uh, of Jesus, we can have a new family where we are loved and adopted as God's children. Because of Jesus, we can have a new future where we are being transformed day by day from one degree of glory to another. And that God will see it to completion. And all these gifts come to those who put their trust and faith in Jesus. That's the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. We deserve judgment for sin. But God so loves the world that he gives unmerited grace through faith. And that grace produces abundant life for all who believe in Christ. I know that was a lot. It's like drinking Romans from a fire hydrant. I would encourage you this week, read the book of Romans. It would take you about one hour. It's about 60 minutes to read Romans from beginning to the end. You could do that in one sitting. Maybe not watch a show this week and you can, boom, read Romans. You could break it up over the course of week. You can make it your devotion, 10 to 15 minutes a day, and you'll get through the book of Romans. Martin Luther, he said, this epistle, Romans, is really the chief part of the New Testament and it is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy that not only every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. We can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The book of Romans changed Luther's life and it can change your life too. And finally, I would ask that everyone in the room today, right now, this week, consider where you stand before God. Are you guilty or forgiven? Are you condemned or accepted? Are you orphaned or adopted? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? If you have put your faith in Christ, then Christian, my prayer is that you would be reminded anew of the gift of grace you have received. Come hungry over the next few weeks as we open up Romans 8. I've been praying that it would increase your faith and devotion to Jesus. And I believe that because God's word does not return void, that he will answer those prayers. 
But if you have not put your faith in Christ, then friend, I would like to know why. Why not? Have you asked yourself, what keeps you from coming to Jesus? Perhaps you think that you don't deserve or that you are not good enough to receive such a gift. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British medical doctor who became a preacher, as a former doctor, he often used diagnostic questions to determine a person's spiritual state and understanding. And he would often ask to members of his church uh, or people in, in the church, he would say, are you now ready to say that you are a Christian? And often, Lloyd-Jones would say that people would hesitate and they would say something to the effect of, well, like, I don't feel like I'm good enough. I don't feel like I deserve the grace of God. And to that, he gives this response. At once, I know that they're still thinking in terms of themselves. Their idea is still that they have to make themselves good enough to be a Christian. It sounds very modest, but it's the lie of the devil. It's a denial of faith. Because you will never be good enough. Nobody has ever been good enough. The essence of Christian salvation is to say that he is good enough. And that I am in him. If what is holding you back is feeling like I could never come to him, I am not good enough, then friend, you are already there. Look on Christ and know that it was his joy to die for you. My prayer is that you would see his goodness and long to be joined to him. May God use this series in Romans for his glory and our good. Let's pray.